initiative, imagination, independence. These principles which von Moltke introduced to military operations in the 19th century seem even more important in today's vague, ambiguous, complex, and uncertain strategic environment. But has the United States gone in another direction? That is the subject of this episode of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. Welcome to The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. I'm Chris Mayer, a retired cavalry colonel and former instructor at the U.S. Army's Command and General Staff College. The purpose of these podcasts is to provide all citizens with the information they need to wisely fulfill their responsibilities in our nation's decisions regarding war. In the previous two episodes, I described how, more than two millennia ago, one great commander was able to instill a common vision among his subordinate commanders, and how, through that, he was able to have the different components of his army maneuver independently towards a common objective. After Alexander the Great and his companions died, it took 2,000 years before that way of war was replicated. This time, it was due to Helmut von Moltke's ability to take the lessons taught by Clausewitz and Gneisenau and use them to transform the Prussian general staff and the army, instilling the three I's, independence, initiative, and imagination. I said that, unlike Alexander's revolution, the general staff revolution endured to continue to affect how armies fight to this present day. But how much of those three eyes really represent the American way of war today? I have my own opinions, but today I'm joined again by Colonel Jason Altieri, U.S. Army retired, and an instructor at the U.S. Air Force's Air War College. I will ask him his perspective on how much the American way of war embodies the von Moltke revolution in military affairs. And once again, although Jason is an instructor at the Air War College, whatever he says, his opinions expressed here do not represent the official position of the Air War College. Hello, Jason. Hello, Chris. Jason, we're taught at the war colleges that at both the operational and strategic levels, Our leaders must be comfortable in an environment that is complex, ambiguous, vague, and uncertain. To me, that sounds like the American weight of war from the platoon level on up throughout our history. But what makes those characteristics different today than they have been in the past? Chris, that's a great question. The reality is the American way of war has at least nominally operated in that VUCA environment based on a number of factors like lack of intelligence, doctrinal intransigence, and yes, even humorous. Think of the bomber doctrine of World War II that that comes to mind. So in many ways, that has been the the way America has operated in its way of war for at least 200 years. And since the latter part of the 19th century, the United States has always attempted to project its air and naval forces into or near the enemy's territory. This brings with it a host of challenges, some inflicted by the adversary and others that are self-inflicted, such as a lack of strategic lift or production capacity. In any future war, the U.S. military will likely play an away game, and an adversary will probably not allow the United States to just leisurely amass personnel and equipment on its borders, think Iraq, but will actively try to prevent it. As such, the U.S. military will suffer from an inherent asymmetry and have an immense cost imposed on it, at least in the initial phases of a conflict. Think, for example, Japan's very poorly implemented strategic doctrine 
to hold at length U.S. strategic naval and air power east of Midway in order to cure those oil and rubber resources in Southeast Asia. While the strategy was good, the execution was poorly handled. And on that same vein, our adversaries know this, and they will use their strength of fighting primarily on land and critically on or close to our own territory think our, and, and take advantage of their own territory's strategic interior lines. That will enable our opponents to use their platforms for things like transport and for fighting. Land platforms, for example, smaller, cheaper, simpler to produce, and far more numerous than their air and naval equivalents will also play a role. In the land domain, for example, mountains, valleys, and trees are easier to hide than the empty space of air and open seas. And thus, a U.S. adversary can fire tens of multi-million dollar missiles at an aircraft carrier or an airhead at very little cost to themselves. And once, say, a U.S. aircraft carrier is hit, it might take years to replace and will subtract a substantial portion of America's strike capabilities for, the, for a duration of time, especially in the outset of a war. That's assuming that platforms like aircraft carriers have not become the 21st century equivalent of a battleship, as Dr. Bob Watts at the National War College has argued. Additionally, our mainland opponents have hundreds of targets. Very few of them are as strategic potentially as an aircraft carrier, and those that our adversaries do deem strategically vital are probably well dug in and thus physically hard to destroy, and many of the rest are cheaper and or more replaceable than even the munitions fired at them. Thinking of an industrialized nation like Germany in 1943-44 that simply adapted its industrial base to counter the combined U.S.-British strategic bombing campaign. So if I could summarize what I just thought I heard you say. In the past, those uh, Vekua or Kavu, however you want to rearrange those letters, the, the ambiguity existed primarily at the tactical and then uh, grand tactical and operational levels. But now we're actually looking at it as though at the uh, strategic level and the uh, lower operational levels. So, for example, to use the example of Midway, whereas the Japanese intent was actually to draw out the American force so that they could crush them, they still didn't know where the American carrier force was. And so they were actually surprised that the American carrier force was sitting there waiting for them. And in current situations, we're going to work at the disadvantage of the, the enemy will pretty much know where our carriers are already. Yeah, it's kind of hard to uh, it's kind of hard to hide a U.S. aircraft carrier as much as we like to think we have the ability to shield them operationally and tactically. But at the end of the day, absolutely, Chris, that lack of intelligence or even the known intelligence we think we have will come to play a role and adds to that ambiguity that you mentioned earlier. So let's go on uh, to the three eyes. Throughout the Cold War, and at least through Operation Desert Storm, my own experience was that the three eyes, initiative, imagination, and independence, were stressed in all of our operations, from lieutenant through lieutenant general. Now, I was a cavalry officer, so it may have been a little bit different for me than in other branches. You had somewhat different experiences, both in the field as an aviation officer, at uh, the staff, joint staff level in Afghanistan, and instruction at, instructing at the National Defense University and the Air War College. What's your perspective on the three eyes in the beginning of this current century? How has it changed? The three eyes that you have stressed are all central tenets of mission command. 
and that idea that states that it's the exercise of authority and direction by the commander using mission type orders to enable this concept of disciplined initiative within the commander's intent to empower agile and i would you could substitute independence and adaptive use the word imagination if you will leaders in conducting that full spectrum of operations and it's the commanders it's, it's the commanders lead leading and then blending that art of command and science to control to integrate warfighting functions to accomplish that mission however though even if our doctrine clearly states how leaders at all levels should execute this idea of the mission command from my own experience in this area we sometimes become too concerned more about the process rather than allowing leaders to use the three eyes to shape a successful outcome at the strategic and operational level. How has this changed in recent history? I'll use my own example that I've heard and have seen it firsthand more than one war college faculty instructing students with the fond phrase, trust the process, trust the process, the outcome will take care of itself. The problem with that ideology or that way of thinking is that if the pro what if the process is broken? If trusting the process is a, is a path to good strategic outcome, the US failures in Vietnam and Afghanistan therefore warrant a hard look at our strategic planning processes for the rest of the 21st century. If we are doing everything right across the dime, so to speak, then why did we fail in both wars and are we actually allowing our commanders to exercise initiative, imagination, and independence when it's really required? The process, I suppose, can be summed up these days as the digitized battlefield and network-centric warfare. Are you saying that this has actually gotten in the way of exercising the three eyes? Chris, here I'll default, here, here I'll default to Clausewitz with regards to his insights on the nature of war and the character of war as it relates to your question. On War describes war's unchanging essence, that is those things that differentiate war as a type of a phenomena from other things. But if you'll allow me, one could argue that overlaying the three eyes on war's nature might equate to violence, initiative, interactive independence, and fundamental, fundamental political views, imagination. Maybe it's not the nature of war, but the character of war that has seen these dramatic changes in digitization and network-centric warfare, as many reformers might argue. And maybe that's completely changed how the three eyes are either enhanced or degraded in a modern battlefield. Again, drawing on my own personal perspective from three years in operations in Afghanistan and Iraq, the digitized battlefield does us little good against an enemy using low or no technologies in the fight. But in fairness, I might be suffering from survivorship bias and applying my own experiences to a more technological adversary would be, would be like asking a veteran of the U.S. Plains Indian Wars to apply his experiences to the World War I battlefields. There may be a major disconnect there. Previously, you said that it's very hard for us to hide against the enemy, whether it's at the option, especially at the operational level. And network-centric operations is, in fact, the operational level. And now my question is, if we are supposed to be trusting the process, as you said, rather than exercising the freedom of the in initiative, imagination, and independent operations, 
that was typical of U.S. operations at the, from the tactical to the operational level, at least through the 20th century. What happens when the enemy attacks that network centrality? When, when all of a sudden we're, we're losing that network, we're losing that digital, digital link among battle commanders? Chris, I would argue at that point, then we, we have to trust those commanders forward to operate without 100% clarity, without having all of the, what we would consider the common operating picture. And sometimes, potentially, we're going to have to underwrite failure of a leader initially to allow them to learn some lessons and mistakes. I'm, uh, what comes to mind is Nimitz in the early parts in the early parts of World War II and the U.S. Pacific Fleet in particular, where we had some catastrophic failures against a very agile and imaginative enemy. Think the Battle of Savo Island. Savo Island proves that we need to accept initial failures and, and, lack, of, and lack of situational awareness to gain better insights for future conflicts. But culturally and within our leadership development, are we able to do that right now? Culturally, that is going to be a struggle we're going to have to we're going to have to come to terms with in the United States with how everything from what's taught at our national war colleges to what we expect commanders in the field to operate, uh, how, how commanders operate. Uh, that I hate to use that hackneyed phrase, the 3,000 mile screwdriver. It does exist, and we can't ignore it because the, po the political decisions still should influence how we execute our, our doctrines. Maybe we look to the past at how Churchill and Roosevelt's Germany first strategy in World War II and George Kennan's containment strategy in the Cold War were both elegant in their simplicity and provided field commanders actually with a great deal of flexibility at the strategic and operational levels of war to make those decisions under a broader rubric rather than direct influence from, say, the White House or the Pentagon. So rather than waiting for the 6,000 mile, the shaft of the 6,000 mile screwdriver to break, we need to be able to get our political leaders and our military leaders to be able to operate that way before it breaks. Oh, absolutely. And to that end, though, there is a cost if you decide to go down that path. But honestly, that's where the United States will always struggle is the price of being a republic, that our strategic directions can change even while troops are in the field. And while that may be painful initially, the synchronization of, our, of what our political will is with our military application, sometimes it doesn't come together cleanly or nicely. But for the most part, and you talked about this, you asked the question from a cultural perspective, we do eventually get there with national will and political will. Except for very recent examples. That leaves us definitely with something to think about and something to think about um, maybe that we need to encourage uh, a different way of thinking to be ready for the middle and late 20th, 21st century. I should mention that not all armies believe in the three eyes, Russia in particular. In their principles of war, they include a principle of strict and uninterrupted obedience. Quote, orders are to be followed exactly and without question. Commanders are expected to directly supervise subordinates in a detailed manner in order to ensure compliance. Given contemporary warfare, network central, di digitized, 
the risk of failure, is that maybe the, a better way to fight contemporary warfare than reliance on the three eyes? Well, the answer is it depends. If an adversary like Russia is playing to its strengths against a strategic competitor, then maybe, maybe for them the answer is yes. Certainly, you can argue World War II demonstrated how Russian doctrine of that nature successfully defeated both the Japanese in 1939 and later Germany in 1945. Of course, there was a cost to pay in terms of casualties with the Russians in, 19, in the 1939 war taking nearly 27,000 casualties against an enemy they outnumbered 2.3 to 1. I would argue that maybe the question we should be asking ourselves is if we know that this is how a strategic, a strategic competitor is going to conduct their strategy with a strict and uninterrupted obedience, how do we, how do we leverage their strength to our advantage, sort of like a judo match? Because mm. they would certainly do that to us. Well, hopefully we can do that. Well, that's a lot to think about there. Now, Jason, before I let you go, I discussed the role of great heroes or great commanders, and I looked at some historical examples. But there were some pretty good examples in Western culture, in, uh, even though they were mythic. For example, Hector, Achilles, or, or Odysseus. In your point of view, which of these three heroes, Hector, Achilles, or Odysseus, represents the American way of war? Chris, what a wonderful question. And like a good strategic planner, I'm going to give you the answer is yes, that the American way of war is reflected in all three. But knowing you like I do, I know I won't get off that easy. No. So I'm going to go, <laughs> I'm going to go with Odysseus, but with some provisos. In the Iliad, if anyone is a good hero in the modern sense, so to speak, it was Hector. But one could argue his sacrifices were in vain, and because of that, in many ways, he was not a good strategic thinker in the end. Achilles, he comes off as a massive bore. He acts like a petulant child who is ruled by his passions. Yeah, sing, sing muse of the wrath of Achilles. Yes, yes, very much so. And even in by contemporary Greek standards, Achilles' immoderate behavior was disgraceful. And while his mistreatment of Hector's body was considered an affront uh, to gods, it was also, at the time, still considered a violation of basic human decency. Odysseus isn't much better. He's canny, he's deceitful, and originally tried to malinger when summoned by Agamemnon. Think of maybe how the British view America in the run-up to World Wars I and II. His arrogance causes him to be cursed by Poseidon. Maybe that's a metaphor for how the rest of the civilized world looks at us. And he's forced to spend a decade at sea. The difference is Odysseus evolves to become a more virtuous and flexible human being. His suffering teaches him lessons. And by the end of the story, Odysseus has become a more temperate, more humble, and more obedient person to the gods. Additionally, Odysseus' greatest virtue is his loyalty to Penelope, maybe another metaphor for our founding principles like the Constitution. His sole motivation was, re was to return to her, and even after he's seduced by Calypso, he rejects her offer of immortality so that he can return to Penelope. Achilles, though, never, never demonstrates any identifiable virtues other than bravery, which is not to be underrated, but it is Odysseus who on the one hand is deceitful and arrogant, on the other hand, loyal and flexible as he evolves his virtues over the course of the story. Really, the human condition. And maybe it is, maybe Odysseus is a better reflection 
of our republic's way of war as it has evolved over the last two centuries. One can hope, especially that, uh, that we learn a change in behavior as the result of experience. Well, thank you very much, Jason, for joining us with us today and, uh, and for your insights on the three eyes and where we need to go as a nation. And for everyone else listening, thank you again for listening to The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. And please come back and join me again, Chris Mayer, for our next episode.